We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan. Today we'll be covering the last seven days of those stories. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Hey, good evening. And also joining us, uh, we got regular guest Brian Hugh, who is the founding editor of New Bloom Magazine. Hello, Brian. It's great being on. And we're very happy to invite onto the show uh, for the first time Dr. Bill Stanton. Uh, got a little bit of a long bio to run through, so I'll run through it fast. Uh, Dr. Stanton is currently at the National Tsinghua University, uh, where he also serves as the director of the university's Asian Policy Center. Before that, he worked in the U.S. State Department as a diplomat in a 34-year career that ended right here in Taiwan, where... Uh, I think many of our listeners probably already know he served as director of the American Institute in Taiwan all the way up until 2012. So, yes, that Bill Stanton, Dr. Stanton, uh, really happy to have you on the show. Glad to be here. Uh, Brian, I'll, I'll give you a longer bio someday. Today we're a little cramped right. yeah, for time. No worries, but no worries. <laughs> more love on that front soon. No problem. Today on the show, uh, first half is all domestic stories. Uh, so a lot to get through there. Second half is all international stories. You know, we usually try to break it all up into little bite-sized pieces, but uh, this week everything's sort of related to everything else, so it all kind of gets smooshed together. Uh, you'll see what I mean in a second. On the international front, uh, there's the surprise selection of James Sung, who's Taiwan's representative, to the upcoming APEC Summit in Lima, Peru. Uh, this week also saw the annual U.S.-Taiwan Defense Industry Conference in Williamsburg, Virginia. That'll give us a little window into U.S.-Taiwan ties there. And President Tsai gave a high-profile Wall Street Journal interview where she declared that she will not give in to Chinese pressure. So, whole lot to look at right there. Uh, we will be rounding out the show with a look at a controversy in Taiwan's sports world uh, that could throw a wrench in plans for the 2017 World Baseball Classic. Uh, but let's start with this week's domestic news. Uh, and it was a pretty important week on that front. An uh, awful lot going on. But all the major headlines kind of centered on the Thai administration and how it's trying to cope with A, uh, the sagging approval ratings, and B, the uh, what I think is probably increasing uh, political pushback on a whole lot of different fronts. Uh, we'll start off with the big news that broke early this week, that being a more turmoil in the cabinet as Financial Supervisory Commission Chairman Ding Konghua uh, turned in his resignation. Uh, and Gavin, uh, I hate to bring this up, but we got to bring it up. This is all related to Megabank once again. Yes, yeah, so oh, wonderful, wonderful Megabank. Would it ever go away is what mm. I have a problem with there. I wish it would, but never mind. Many people wish it wouldn't. Anyway, the, the pre- gripes of tired anchors. I know, I know. We just call it the, the massive, messy bank, really. Anyway, <laughs> Premier Lin Chun earlier this week, he took flack, of course, because there's been calls in the com- in the previous weeks by the KMT in the legislature for a cabinet reshuffle. Mm-hmm. They don't like the way things are going. Well, poo-poo for them. But anyway, moving on. Well, it's their job not it's to like It's their job not to like the DPP. Didn't like the Ma cabinet and previous cabinet. You know, it's just, just politics. But unfortunately, um, Financial Supervisory Commission Chairman Ding Kohua did step down this week. And that led to more speculation that Finance Minister Xu Yu-je could also step down sometime 
Well, it didn't happen this week, but it could happen next week. Premier Lin Tran says nay, nay, nay. He said no, 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 and he said no, it won't happen. But unfortunately, it could happen because both Ding and Shu have been referred to the control UN for investigation <gasps> in connection with the government's handling of the mega bank money laundering scandal. There we go again. And, of course, that only got worse this week when Megabank Financial Holdings chairman or the former chairman, McKinney Tsai, was officially detained. Mm. He, of course, had been out on bail. Now, police and prosecutors rather questioned 18 people in all this week to do with the mega financial holdings scandal, and they included Runtex Financial Group Chairman Samuel Yin. Mm. While Samuel Yin was released after being questioned, the former Chief Secretary of Mega Financial, Wang Chi Bang, was detained along with Tsai. Mm. And just to clarify for our listeners, the scandal, because we haven't really touched on this topic in a while, the scandal this week is not the whole Panama Paper nonsense. It's not the New York City regulatory kerfuffle. This is kind of a new thing. This is the judicial investigation here in Taiwan into whether Megabank violated anti-money laundering laws, basically. The Money Laundering Control Act, it's called. But sadly, that's not the only act the bank is under investigation for, because it's also under investigation for possibly violating the Banking Act itself and the Financial Holding Company Act giving loans to the uh, ruined tax companies that maybe they shouldn't have been giving money to. There was, a, Yeah, apparently prosecutors say they have evidence, and I'm reading this from a news story, prosecutors say they have evidence that suggests that McKinney Tsai, he's the former financial mega holdings bloke, he approved <laughs> billions of NT sure, dollars. Sure, that's what it says on his business card. <laughs> well, he might as well do. He's in, he's in the big house now, and you're not going to do anything about it, is he? Anyway, prosecutors say they have evidence suggesting that Tsai approved billions of dollars in new Taiwan dollars in loans to Runtex prior to Tsai taking up a chairmanship post at a company which just happened to be indirectly funded by Samuel Yin's Runtex group. Mm-hmm. So the plot thickens there. Just a quick note uh, going back to Financial Supervisory Commission Chairman Ding. Uh, now, would his, you know, the, the, the things that he's under suspicion for, are those connected to those domestic issues you just talked about or the New York well, he's issues? A, he's under fire for everything. Basically, he's, he's the financial supervisor of Commission as a whole is facing flack because people are going, hang on a minute, if this mega bank was up to all these shenanigans, why weren't you monitoring the island's banking system properly in the first place? Of course, a lot of this took place in 2012, you know, years before he took office. Yeah, I know, but you know what people are like. They've got to blame someone, haven't they? And poor old Mr. Ding got blamed. All right. But, I mean, he's basically come out and said he offered to step down to say, A, to defend himself, and B basically to defend the commission. He mm-hmm. headed the commission. He didn't see the commission had done anything wrong. The control UN is now looking into it. And there we go. I'm sure we'll be talking about this more in the coming weeks. All right. So some bad news for the cabinet, which is, you know, trying to show that they are meeting the criticisms, meeting the challenge. Uh, but uh, perhaps uh, we'll be seeing more folks drop off from there in the next couple of months. But let's move on to more news that also concerns the cabinet. On Tuesday, President Tsai held the first of what is expected to be many weekly policy coordination meetings. Uh, This week, they brought to the table party, central and local government representatives uh, to kind of get everybody on the same page for how they're going to move forward on a number of policy issues. This is seen by many observers as an attempt by Tsai Ing-wen, President Tsai Ing-wen, to, you know, kind of consolidate power. Uh, and burst through the gridlock that her administration has been facing uh, so far during the short-lived tenure. It's also led to some criticism uh, of Premier Lin Tran. Some people are saying, oh, you know, if 
Tsai is holding these meetings where she's just telling everybody what to do. What's the point of having a premiere? Are you just a figurehead, Mr. Lin? Uh, so that's some of the uh, criticism we've been hearing on that front this week. Uh, it also, though, this uh, this conference, this little committee meeting, led to a concrete promise that the cabinet would implement the embattled five-day work week by the end of this year. Uh, and that was Tuesday, Gavin. Wednesday, uh, well, we already saw some big movement on that front, but not everybody's happy with the movement we saw. No, there's quite a lot of movement, Keith, actually. There was quite a lot of movement into some of the committee rooms in the Legislative UN the night before one of these major meetings. Movement of fists and arms and legs. First of all, it was movements of people when people... We'll start there. Lawmakers went into some committee rooms in the Legislative UN to occupy them in an attempt to stop the DPP from basically... Had a, there's no other way to push it, pushing through a government-sponsored workweek regulation reform bill. Mm-hmm. Now, they did manage to push it through because basically the KMT didn't even bother turning up for the vote. and It took 60 seconds. It, yeah, it was... Got to be the quickest vote ever, except the vote that they made a couple of years ago that led to the occupation of the legislative event by the students. And there have been some parallels drawn between With these that, two yes, incidents. Yes, yes, and we can get into that in a second. <laughs> um, right, so... so Basically, the way it, the way it all went down is the the uh, DPP uh, individual that was heading that committee uh, asked, you know, are there any objections to this bill getting uh, getting passed? There were some objections, were but qu- she just moved on anyway. There were quite a few objections, actually. Outside. She said she couldn't hear the objections over the hubbub and the din and the roar. Well, the, the objections were outside the legislative UN, and they were also outside President Tsai Ing-wen's abode. Mm. Um, this is Labour groups are protesting this. And, of course, this is a draft amendment to the Labour Standards Act, which still needs to be reviewed in the legislative chamber. But it means that basically employees in Taiwan will work a five-day week with an extra day being called a flexible day. Flexi-day. We've talked about this before. Which means that five-day working week with one flexi-day. But what really irked most people was the fact that we're losing several public holidays. Right. Of course, the Thai administration had pledged they were going to keep this group of seven holidays. To get this passed, I guess they decided that they had to jettison them. Uh, And folks are also angered at uh, not having two fixed days. You know, the one fixed, one flexi day so that's what labor groups are a little ticked off about brian what about these holidays mate what do you reckon are losing yeah let's bring brian into the conversation so uh give give us a a little sense of why is labor so mad about this um it's actually kind of surprising the moves of the Thai administration because you know the two demands i think of labor were on having two set rest day two set days off per week and also for there not to be public holidays to be cut but Thai took a pretty hard line in both going for the rest day and as well as cutting off seven public holidays. Um, and the result is, you know, I think Thai is is probably moving towards being less compromising with a lot of civil society groups. Um, right. If, if you listened to the criticism this week, obviously industry has been pushing pretty hard yes. on this issue. Uh, and they, they, they were not, like, effusive with praise. They weren't saying we love it, but mm. they also weren't saying they hated it. So of the mm. two groups, uh, they were the ones that were complaining less. Mm. So it seems like it was probably better for industry. That is so. I mean, Tsai did meet with industry leaders who were unhappy with the the uh, planned. The you know after after labor groups protested, Tsai went back on plans to cut back public holidays. But then after business groups complained about that, you know she went on back on that plan too. So it does seem like she sided with business in the sense. Well, it's and, not. Let's let's not defend anything here. But let's just say. The, late, the, the, the business owning groups, those being the, the biggest ones, the Chinese National Association of Industry and Commerce and the Chinese National Federation of Industries, 
they weren't screaming, hey, we need less public holidays because we want people to work for us. They were basically saying, we'd like national holidays to be consistent for both the public and private sectors, of course. Mm. I, that's that's size justification currently for cutting uh, public holidays. I mean, many labor groups call that an excuse, of course. Um, but, you know, make consistency is, is kind of her justification for this. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in the meantime, I mean, we'll see. Because, you know, Tsai did cite that uh, she would not be so interested in listening to, you know, interest groups that lobby her on kind of a, on a revolving door basis. Uh, she said that specifically in her statement about, you know, the changes in labor policy. So, mm-hmm. I mean, we'll have to see. I mean, this does shape things up for confrontation between Labour and the Thai administration. Mm. What about Bill? You're a busy man. More public holidays, less public holidays. I don't know. My impression is that uh, Taiwanese workers work too much anyway. Um, they, you know, the lady who cuts my hair, she works six days a week. She works about 12 hours a day. And I think the fact that there's going to be two days off a week, even if one is flexible, is progress. At the same time, it also, I think, uh, you know, will satisfy those small and medium-sized businesses that can't afford to give off, give out two fixed days a week because it depends on the workload and other factors that are hard to predetermine. So I think actually it was a sensible compromise on her part. Um, I was actually a little surprised because, you know, I thought that she might go back on one of the things, you know, like, let's say the, the, the flexible rest day or in regards to the cuts of public holidays, but she actually drew the line with both. So, you know, after a lot of waffling with both labor groups and business groups, she actually kind of sided completely against biz, uh, labor, which, which seemed a little surprising to me. It's pretty close to the original proposal from the KMT yeah. that we saw last year. Yeah. And mm-hmm. although the KMT is, of course, demonstrating this now for the sake of politics. <laughs> right. Exactly. But of course, the issue did come to a head last week, of course, when we had the famous Teacher's Day holiday, where, of course, teachers had to work. Exactly. On Teacher's Day. <laughs> <laughs> well, some, I, uh, most places got to... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> most places did get declared typhoon holidays, so I guess uh, mixed blessing? I don't know. Let's, uh, let's turn away from the specifics of uh, this policy question and more towards uh, the Tide administration's handling of all this. Um, now, uh, like, as we said, you know, this has drawn uh, some pretty strong parallels to some of these strong arm tactics that the KMT had uh, during the period where they were leading the legislature and the presidency. Uh, Gavin mentioned uh, the incident that uh, kind of sparked off the Sunflower Movement, uh, definitely drawing some parallels right there. Uh, I guess kind of a question that I've always had, and I, I'm, this is probably just for me not understanding enough about how the legislative yuan works, is why was this necessary? I mean, if they have a majority in all of these committees and they have a majority in the legislature and they have the presidency, why do they need to take these steps that are seen as, you know, so strong-armed? Um, I think that basically they, they want to avoid, you know, dragging this out. Um, the KMT or the NPP can prolong this out with different tactics and, you know, make this into a public spectacle. So they just wanted to get it over with. But mm-hmm. that is also very surprising because, you know, the messaging of the Thai administration on this issue had just been back and forth. And then in the end, they decide to use strong arm tactics. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, the way it was passed was, you know, they, they changed the meeting room at the last minute and, you know, like occupied the meeting room and so forth. Like, again, you know, this was passed in a minute. So, mm. like, why, why would you do something that, you know, the KMT came under fire for just a few years ago to such a large extent? Mm. Of course, it was only passed in a committee meeting. Mm-hmm. much like the act that the KMT passed with the China deal. That was passed in a committee meeting. Then mm-hmm. it went to the legislative floor, of course, and mm-hmm. it all, well, it's still there, basically, technically, isn't it, on paper. Mm-hmm. So this, this this holiday law, work week law, could be stalled when it goes to the legislative floor. Mm-hmm. Depending right, on. there's still two more levels of review that it needs mm-hmm. to go through. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Uh, Bill, what do you take away uh, from this whole episode? Well, I think it may be a sign of the frustration. Um, on the other hand, everybody's been complaining about that nothing seems to be getting done. And I think maybe in part to response to that kind of criticism, there was a feeling the need to make something actually happen, to show some results. So from that point of view, it's kind of understandable to move forward on at least one issue. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess the Thai administration just wants to settle this and, you know, hopefully hope that this just dies down. But at the same time, I mean, um, this is a policy that does affect the whole of society. So I'm, I'm still surprised because, you mm. know, that has the potential for extreme backlash mm. versus other issues, let's say, regarding identity. I mean, labor policy directly affects everyone who works in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a surprising issue to really kind of draw a hard line on. Yeah. Mm. Well, uh, certainly, you know, when we kind of couple this news with the news of that uh, policy meeting earlier in the week, it, it, it definitely gives many in Taiwan the impression that uh, the Thai administration is really trying to you know, it sounds bad to say consolidate power. Uh, maybe a better way to put it would be put everybody on the same page and, you know, get everybody marching in a similar direction. So uh, maybe a trend that we will see uh, continuing into the future. Uh, although, as we said, you know, it's important to point out there are still two more steps in the legislative review process. There's the cross-caucus talks, uh, and then there's the actual full-floor deliberation, all that. So, you know, the law isn't passed. There's still more deliberation that's going to happen. Uh, so we will see what comes of all of that. Uh, but we are coming up on a break now, so uh, we're going to have to keep moving on. When we return, uh, we'll be talking about all the international news of the week. And there was a bunch of it, so going to take a bit. Then it uh, looks like the Chinese Professional Baseball League is no longer willing to play ball with the Chinese Taipei Baseball Association. We'll explain who they are, and why that is. And then for our podcast listeners, as always, uh, we'll close out the show with a bonus podcast story. This week, Yunlin County goes to great lengths to save one couple's wedding ring. The twist? Even after they found it, they were still pretty down in the dumps. You'll get that stupid pun and so many more if you subscribe to our (laughs) podcast on iTunes and check out the full show. Uh, But for now, stay tuned for the rest of the show. We'll return in just a second to Taiwan This Week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Gavin Phipps, Brian Hugh, and Bill Stanton. Kicking off the second half, uh, we're taking a deep dive into international politics. Whole bunch of stories on that front. First up, maximum goodwill towards China. That's how PFP Chairman James Soong described the Tsai administration's decision to appoint him as this year's representative to the APEC Leaders' Summit. Uh, so it sounds like, uh, Gavin, he's expecting China's leaders to like this idea of uh, having James Soon at the helm. But it came as a surprise to many here in Taiwan. Well, I guess to some, but seeing as about a month ago I opened the Apple Daily and on the front page there was a headline that screamed People First Party Chairman James Sung to become APEC representative this year. Okay, so people that don't, you know, <laughs> look at the front page of the Apple Daily. <laughs> well, what was a little bit of a surprise. But what was interesting about that headline of over a month ago was it, it did scream that at me, mm-hmm. but then it had in the subhead, China not happy with this. Hmm. But yesterday, but that, he's saying goodwill. Ah, but yesterday, yesterday he was this 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 hit the fan on Wednesday when the government came out and said, "Yeah, we're going to make James Sung the representative to APEC this year." And yesterday, James Sung met the press to basically formally accept 
the job offer, if you can call it a job offer, the free aeroplane <laughs> ticket, the free a, the free aeroplane and hotel ticket offer, he accepted it in public. He's yesterday. not calling it a job. He's calling it what was it a duty? Uh, 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 hang on, I've got the exact quote. Actually, I've got the exact quote here. Do I have the exact quote? I hope I have the exact quote. <laughs> it was a great quote. Yes, he didn't call it a job. In fact, Keith, he said it is not a job. It is not a mission and nor a personal honour, but a responsibility to mm. Taiwan, its democracy and its people. Wow. That's what he said. There you go. I'm not sure I see the, the distinction between all those things, but maybe it sounds better it in sounds Chinese. It sounds better. It sounds really good, doesn't it? It, did, it, sounds, know, it, it sounds, does sound really pretty good. funky. It sounds pretty good. But anyway, James Sung yesterday, after he said all that, he said there is a possibility that he could meet with China's Xi Jinping at the APEC this year in Lima. So there's a hope that he could meet with him, which would be not a bad thing, mm-hmm. you know. Why not? Yeah, you know. Uh, well, they do know each other. Time. They have met before. Mm-hmm. It's not like you know he's going. Who are you? Type right. Of conversation. <laughs> hey, how's it going? Type right. of conversation. You know. Yeah, well, so this is kind of an interesting pick uh, of, uh, there's been a little bit of criticism because obviously he's, uh, at this point, just a politician. He has no economic portfolio or anything like that. Um, but uh, at the same time, it kind of falls into a trend that we've, uh, many have identified of uh, the Thai administration choosing pan-blue folks to head really important initiatives or projects or agencies uh, and, and, and some are questioning whether or not that's going to allow, uh, you know, the pan-green side to move forward uh, with, you know, their policies. Uh, but, uh, Bill, what do you see here? Well, I actually think it was kind of a wise choice because, uh, first of all, there's more likelihood, I suppose, that there would be a meeting with Xi in which perhaps he would, uh, would hope would relate Tsai Ing-wen's views uh, that she's already expressed publicly about the relationship and her willingness um, Uh, to have a good relationship or hope to have a good relationship with China. But there are other aspects of it. Uh, James Sung is a uh, – he speaks English really well and a lot of the work that you have to do uh, at APEC is to meet with other world leaders uh, and there's other business that needs to be carried on. So it's not just a matter of uh, getting together with the Chinese leader or not. Um, I think that um, it probably also is a bit of a gesture by Tsai Ing-wen to try to present somebody to the Chinese to show she's as forthcoming as possible, who's more acceptable to them, at least in theory. Um, But, you know, there's a long tradition in Taiwan. I remember uh, what I've read, I've learned, that when uh, Zhang Zhongmo was uh, selected by – Chen Shui-bian, to represent uh, Taiwan in APEC years ago uh, when he came back. By all accounts, he had done a great job and he was criticized by both the KMT and by the DPP for having been selected. It was – he didn't make anyone happy. So uh, I think whoever you choose, there's reason to find fault. Mm. Um, But I think on balance, I think it's not a bad idea. Do you th- do you think though that it will make a difference with China? I mean, they they've been, uh, as we've reported many times on the show. Of course, uh, cross strait ties have kind of cooled over the last several mm-hmm. months, and they say their bottom line. They don't care who the figurehead is. They don't care uh, who is at the head of the uh, mainland affairs council, for example. They've said the thing that matters to them is recognition of the 1992 consensus. So, will this make a yeah. difference? Well, probably not. I, I might, but, um, you know, the 92 consensus, of course, is a myth anyway. Um, there's never been a consensus because China itself has never um, given the Gubiao 
the different interpretations um, uh, part of the uh, so-called consensus. So I never believed there was a consensus. They stick to that idea, but that's all they want you to say is Iga Zhongguo, one mm-hmm. China. So um, it may, may, you know, it may or may not make a difference. They may decide to meet with him to deliver a message to Tsai about the 92 consensus or um, as a gesture of goodwill, or they may decide to rebuff him to show that they're continuing to take a hard line. Hard mm. to say. Uh, Brian, what are your thoughts? I mean, it's, it's, it is very interesting that Tsai is choosing pan-blue politicians to do things in, with regard to international bodies. Because, you know, I think maybe the DPP is under the impression that the pan-blue camp can handle things with China better, as they claim themselves. Um, the choice of James Song is interesting. I mean, it obviously opens her to the criticism that, you know, she picked someone that, that was the head of the government information office during the martial law period. So, you know, this is, opens her to the criticism that she's bringing kind of officials with, you know, murky past during the authoritarian period into her office at a time when otherwise she's pursuing transitional justice. You guys got into a little bit of a fight over uh, this sort of issue when I wasn't here for the show about a month ago. I so, think so. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do remember that. that. I do remember that, yeah. Um, but fitting to that pattern, I mean, I also wonder if Ty is trying to engineer a split within the pan-blue camp. I mean, for example, the People First Party has been more critical of the KMT on the issue of party assets. Uh, similarly, that, that there were similar moves to bring, you know, Wang Jinping in, into the fold with the with the, um, with him possibly heading the Straits Exchange Foundation, I see this as kind of a similar move. So, mm. I, I don't, I don't see the relevance of him heading the GIO though. I think maybe he's mellowed mm. as, you move, <laughs> as you mature. I, I suppose so. <laughs> could be, could be. I mean, uh, there were a lot of people who worked for the government at that time. I mean, yeah, yeah, he's yeah, not yeah. the only one. I mean, just about everyone did. <laughs> yeah. And you know, the majority of the people at that time, they were all Taiwanese as well. I mean, they weren't necessarily Waisheng. They. Uh, you know, so um, that was the name of the game. You worked for the government or you didn't work mm-hmm. for the government. That was it. Yeah, I, I just do wonder, though, for, you know, it's high as domestic initiatives. Like, this will have blowback. Um, this does really open up her to the charge of, you know, just really, really letting these people off the hook. So, I mean, we'll have to see on that. Mm. Uh, Bill, have you, uh, have you been to APEC in your, you know, duties working for State Department? No, never. I always welcome the APEC representatives who came to Taiwan. I was embarrassed once to hear someone repeat over and over again that uh, he was glad to be calling on the uh, the uh, Taiwan Economic Entity, uh, which is the way he referred <laughs> to it. Um, he was uh, being more Catholic than the Pope and his mm-hmm. use of language referring – and this was in a meeting with President Ma. Mm. Um, but um, – you know, the, one of the problems with APEC is, aside from the CONFAB that takes place every year, is it's, you know, in some minor areas, in the subcommittees and the sub-subcommittees, it may do some work. But overall, it's hard to see that it's accomplished all that much, in my view. Um, but uh, I shouldn't say that because I have a friend now who works in, <laughs> in the organization. But um, Just don't, don't make sure they don't listen to this podcast. It'll be all Yeah, right. but uh, APEC is... Um, you know, it's important to t- Taiwan because Taiwan's a member of it. That's mm-hmm. what gives it its importance here rather than any specific uh, results that come out of it. It's a participant, which it's denied by uh, the mainland in so many other areas. Mm. And you get a nice shirt. Uh, you get an ugly shirt, depending on the country. Depending on the country. Depending on the country. <laughs> The Taiwan Economic, what did you say, entity? Well, they're looking for a replacement for Chinese Taipei, so maybe that, that's a, in the running now. We can consider yeah. that one. 
Uh, All right. Well, we're going to have to leave behind that APEC story because we have a lot more stuff on the international front to get to. Up next, we're going to cover this one quickly. President Tsai gave a high-profile interview to the Wall Street Journal this week. Seems like the take-home line that uh, many are picking up on is uh, Tsai's statement that she will not succumb to pressure from China, Gavin. Yes, she said that Taiwan wouldn't buckle under the pressure that China has ratcheted up on the island. She also actually called for talks with China. She said, hey, I'm, I'm quite happy to sit down with Chinese President Xi Jinping, but such a meeting must come without any preconditions, which Tsai went on to call obstructive to the development of cross-strait ties. Of course, nothing new, but of course it appeared in the Wall Street Journal. So it, it, it sounds to me, well, Gavin's saying nothing new there, but it does seem like slightly more stringent uh, rhetoric than we've been hearing. Hearing, uh, from the Tide administration thus far. Uh, did you pick something else up there, or, or, or do you agree with that? Um, yeah, I think that Tsai is really trying to project, you know, the narrative of Taiwan being the victim of China. So that's that's very important that she has to emphasize that Taiwan is not at fault here. It's China that's breaking ties, and Ta- China is the one that's being unreasonable. Mm. So I mean, Tsai taking that strategy, she really wants to be avoid uh, to avoid being perceived as an aggressor, the troublemaker. Yes, much as Chen Shui-bian was. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, she comes across, I think, as a stronger leader. You know, when you're telling uh, China that you're not going to buckle under their pressure, um, that's a bit brave, you know, um, because they can, of course, bring more pressure to bear. Um, So I think that sends a a message to the people of Taiwan uh, as well as to Beijing. And uh, I liked it. I thought that was a a good thing to say. Mm. Of course, there could be a a postscript to this when it comes out that she didn't mean what she said because she said it in English and the translation wasn't correct, which I write deja vu that would be, of course, to an interview that happened with the last president. Uh, I understand uh, from some of the blogs I've been reading that the translation seems to have been fairly accurate. She might have. Did she do the are, – are you sure she did the interview in Chinese? I mean, because she speaks pretty decent English, so it may have been in English. It's well, hard she to speaks say. great English. English yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I was just referring to the, right, last, no. the last president who had an in English when it was... He didn't actually say that. <laughs> yeah, <right>. No. <laughs> that, happened, that happened more than once. That happened more than once. All right. Well, uh, let's move on to our final story on the international front uh, to round out our look at international news this week. Got a little glimpse at the direction of U.S.-Taiwan ties earlier this week. Uh, the annual U.S.-Taiwan Defense Industry Conference in Williamsburg, Virginia, kicked off. Uh, I think it was Monday, maybe? Anyway, earlier this week, uh, that brought together officials and defense industry bigwigs from both countries, Gavin. Actually kicked off on Sunday in Williamsburg, Virginia, Keith. Mm-hmm. This, of course, is a annual event where basically defense contractings, defense-related people... And people generally to do with the U.S.-Taiwan connections with defence meet up and talk about how the U.S. and Taiwan can cooperate. It's basically a a meeting that's organised to work out cooperation between Taiwan and the U.S. on defence issues. Right. And so for folks that feel, as uh, some observers do, that there have not been enough arms deals between Taiwan and the U.S. recently... Uh, a lot of them would be looking very closely at this to see if any breakthroughs were going to be made. Well, it's quite interesting because the defense minister wasn't re- – the defense minister didn't go. The deputy defense minister went, Li Shiming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He headed Taiwan's delegation to the meeting this year. And he was quoted before he went saying, I think when we go this year, we'll hear some good news about an arms package deal. Right. And Sadly, it wasn't to be, though. Apparently not. No. Apparently not. Uh, we, uh, you just mentioned Rupert Hammond Chambers, ICRT, uh, actually had a chance to speak with him uh, earlier this week. 
Uh, and he said, he, uh, kind of on that point that you were touching on right there, uh, he says that while, you know, some folks are saying that there might be some deals going forward, in fact, there likely will be some kind of defense deal going for- forward, uh, it looks like the dollar quantity, the actual value of this deal, just won't be that big. In my view, the majority of any package notified to Congress, if it were to take place later this year, would be munitions. Another point that he picked up on uh, when he talked to us is that he said attendees at the conference uh, are really going to be focusing on exactly what Tsai's indigenous defense industry policy is going to look like. Uh, he says they still got a lot of big questions. What does it mean for Taiwan? What does it mean for Taiwan defense industry? And what does it mean for, for Taiwan's U.S. industry partners and U.S. policy? How do we click in to the priorities that President Tsai is framing? There are going to be several significant reports released in the early part of the new year, around Chinese New Year, on Taiwan defense policy by the Taiwan government. Um, that hopefully will provide more indication. And of course, the new U.S. government coming in. What will be the priorities and how will U.S. industry support large programs like the submarine program and the, the, uh, the fighter trainer program, as well as all the way down smaller programs and, of course, cyberspace, which is a significant area of national security concern. One of the biggest questions has to do with submersibles, submarines and new aeroplanes, of course. And Taiwan says that they're going to try to uh, uh, produce those domestically. However, they're, they're still looking for support from the U.S. Well, they've put a bunch of money aside to develop the submarines, and I believe Rupert Hammond Chambers has said in the past that he doesn't believe the amount of money that's been put aside for the submarines is not nearly enough. Mm. But, of course, you've had to deal with this, haven't you, sir? Mm. Well, for a long time, uh, there's been the view both in the U.S. military and I think the Taiwan military uh, that asymmetric defense is the most important and the most asymmetrical weapon you can have is a submarine because you don't know where it is. And they always draw the comparison with the Falklands War when uh, Argentina had one submarine and the Brits didn't know where it was and it held – it held them back quite a bit. It turned out that it was in dry dock or being repaired. Um, but just the threat of a submarine. Just the threat of a submarine makes uh, the calculations of uh, any kind of an offensive much more difficult. The problem is, uh, in the case of the U.S., the U.S. doesn't build diesel submarines, which is what Taiwan would want. And um, they're extraordinarily complex to build. They're extremely expensive. Uh and the hope has been, I think, since uh, the U.S. doesn't build them anyway, that they would either be able to purchase them or at least purchase parts of them and plans for them from countries that still make them, Japan, Germany, other countries. Whether they have enough intestinal fortitude to do that remains an open question. I think uh, – Because any country that did that would be facing pressure from China. Absolutely. And the only country that's willing to sell arms openly and in fact – to my view, mistakenly always puts it in the congressional record. Uh, it would make a lot more sense to keep it quiet if they didn't – what they don't know can't offend them, the, the Chinese. Um, we always announce what we're going to sell. So – and that means that there's usually a fairly uh, restrictive attitude and I guess I hope that at the end of the Obama administration – they would go ahead with a, a large arms package, but it also may be the question that they don't have enough money in Taiwan in order to reach that level. As you know, under the eight years of the uh, Ma administration, there was a continuing decline in defense spending. So it's awfully hard to gear up. 
particularly when the tax rate doesn't seem to be going up in Taiwan. And there are so many other social demands. I mean, people want free medical care. They want a very inexpensive education. And they also want defense. Well, you know, you have to raise taxes or you can't do everything very well. Um, but there may have been deals going on that they're not going to talk about. Uh, in terms of uh, defense cooperation, I understand there are a number of American firms who are looking forward to collaboration with Taiwanese companies um, to share technology and uh, perhaps manufacturing processes. They're looking at these um, these kinds of cooperation uh, to help bolster the defense industry here. But there still is not enough information in public to know for sure. Hmm. Could you give us some sense of uh, the current need in Taiwan? I mean, we we always hear these reports about uh, new capabilities from uh, China and how much more spending that they're directing towards uh, defense than Taiwan is. And of course, uh, Rupert also pointed out, as uh, as you know, many people do that that when China is spending on defense, uh, a great deal of that is really focused on Taiwan. Um, so, so how how is that balance tipping these days? Uh, it's, I would say it's tipping very heavily in favor of China. I mean, that's been a continuing trend. Uh, Taiwan just doesn't spend enough on defense. And in the days when Ma was President Ma, former President Ma was talking about an all volunteer army, we were always uh, telling him that an all volunteer force is more expensive. You don't save money. He was arguing it saves money. If you want to attract and keep the best personnel, you have to take care of their families. You have to take care of the education, the health care of these people. You have to provide attractive salaries. So that seems to be in abeyance now, the movement toward enroll volunteer force, uh, the manpower question. Um, there's no question that Taiwan's defense is not as strong as it needs to be and more steps need to be taken. And that also, uh, you know, I'd like to see more Taiwanese members of the Taiwanese public expressing their concerns about Taiwan's defense as well as on issues like like the work week and uh, and pensions and, and, and all the other issues that are preoccupying the legislative UN. I think it's, a, it's very important that Taiwan do more. Um, and the two, the two areas that they most need to look at, uh, one is submarines and the second one I wouldn't say is fighter jets. No, it would be missiles, continually improved missile technology because that also is an asymmetric weapons system. And Taiwan has already made a good bit of progress in developing its own indigenous missile systems. So I think it needs to pursue that further. Hmm. Let's broaden the conversation uh, beyond just defense into, uh, you know, U.S.-Taiwan ties more generally. We have a, a former AIT head here, so I think we might as well. Um, you've actually uh, been somewhat critical uh, over the last year or so of the Obama administration. Uh, you've basically said that the biggest problem in uh, the Obama administration, toward, uh, their policy towards China has been leaving out Taiwan or underestimating Taiwan. Uh, we're coming up on the end of that term, and we have so many, you know, question marks over what's going to happen once his term is over, uh, since we don't even know who the next presidency uh, president is going to be. Uh, but would you still make the same criticism? Do you still see that trend continuing? 
Uh, obviously, it's hard to say. You know, um, certainly if uh, Trump were elected, all bets would be off because, um, in my view, he's uh, uh, he's a real risk for everyone, not only America but for the world. I don't know uh, if that came through in the recording, but the the the, the look on on Bill's face, uh, <laughs> real concern there, real concern there. Yeah, real concern. Um, I think it's most likely that uh, Clinton will be elected president. Uh, when she's spoken out uh, about Taiwan, when she's addressed that issue, she's spoken in very uh, supportive terms, for example, uh, talking about the threat of becoming economically dependent on China, which, of course, has already happened, that it might lead to political uh, dependence as well. And when she made that comment, she drew a parallel with Ukraine. Um, thereby making an analogy between what happened with Crimea and the Soviets and now uh, China and Taiwan. I also know I was in Beijing in uh, 1995 when as First Lady she attended the UN uh, Women's uh, Meeting Convention and she gave a very tough speech on women's rights or human rights that really angered uh, the Chinese government. She was critical of human rights or women's rights in China. And they moved the whole women's conference out into a field uh, in the countryside about an hour outside of uh, Beijing where it proceeded to rain for three or four days. And so all of the participants were walking around in the mud. Uh, since that time, she's always had, a, how should I say, a more realistic view of the Chinese. And if you look at the Chinese press, it's vitriolic about her. Um, she's the only uh, foreign secretary that I can think of, foreign minister, who upon the eve of a visit, I think it was in 2010, uh, the official Chinese media said her visit was not welcome. Um, so there's a, a long history there. Um, I know that she views the Chinese claims about the Nine Dash Line as being, quote, ridiculous. Um, that's what I've heard third hand that she described it as. Mm. And so I think we will have a, a relationship where she's likely to be more sympathetic to Taiwan and I think uh, will be more skeptical of the way our relationship, the United States and China, has usually been handled. And that's certainly my hope. I think a new realism is called for in the U.S. relationship with China, which would also be consistent with American public opinion, because going back to 2012, uh, the unfavorability of unfavorable views of China began to surpass those of favorable views. And last year, in around this time, uh, the Pew survey showed that about 53% of American people had an unfavorable view of the Chinese mainland. So, uh, you know, if, if Clinton is elected, I would hope we would see a more realistic policy toward dealing with China and a more supportive policy toward Taiwan. All right. And uh, let's toss things over to Brian to kind of close things out. Yeah, I mean, it also does seem likely to me, I mean, it seems likely to me Hillary might reverse course on the TPP. Um, the interesting, the question for me, though, is that, you know, a stronger stance on China does not necessarily b mean bringing Taiwan to the fold. Mm. And also that, uh, I, I wonder about as to perception of the Thai administration, for example. For example, Thai does want to sign the TPP, but also she wants to sign the RCEP with China. So, you know, like these are kind of public statements of her that are out there. So I, I kind of wonder how, how Thai will be perceived. I mean, obviously, she is a DPP candidate and not a KMT one, but... I mean, even on the issue of free trade, there's a kind of ambiguous stance by her. Again, she's playing business 
versus mm. the worker. Yeah, I think. So. Well, I, so, I think so. I think she has to keep her options open on trade. I mean, I, I think it makes sense from uh, a leadership point of view to say I'm I'm for RCEP, I'm for uh, TPP. I mean, she doesn't lose anything. And clearly, to some extent, it's going to be mutually exclusive, depending on which one she gets into first. But, you know, it's there's no necessary contradiction. She might join RCEP and then get, you know, into the TPP as well. I mean, that's possible. Um, That'd be a bit of a score, really, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, it's theoretically possible. I'm not saying it's likely, but... Um, and I, I've always made the point with the DPP and with uh, previous governments that Taiwan – and they're moving in that direction already. We've, I've just seen that, for example, they've changed um, their position on regulatory notification, giving a 60-day period so that, for example, American companies in Taiwan can see regulations are being introduced and have a period of time in order to comment before the legislation is passed to approve those regulations. That's a positive step. And what I've been arguing is Taiwan should be moving in the direction of what it would need to do to get into the TPP. And if the TPP falls apart, then Taiwan can say, fine, but, you know, we've met all the criteria for joining the TPP. How about U.S., our friends, dear Pengyo, why don't we have a free trade agreement between Taiwan and the United States? And traditionally, if you look at the countries that the United States has signed free trade agreements, it's been as much or more about our overall political and strategic relationship as it has been about economics. First, one of the first free trade, if not the first, was with Israel, with Jordan, because it was nice to Israel, Morocco, because it was also friendly toward Israel, um, Chile, because it was moving toward a more capitalistic system, um, Australia, great ally of the United States. It was in return for their supporting us in Iraq, in part, uh, South Korea, an ally. Um, actually, the U.S. trade deficit with uh with Korea has gone up hundreds of millions of dollars since we implemented that agreement. So as much as anything, it's been the geostrategic considerations that have brought us into free trade agreements. And Taiwan should use that argument as well if it meets some of the fundamental criteria that need to be met. I just saw in the paper yesterday, I think, that there's still no movement on the pork issue. We're looking at you, pork. Looking at you. <laughs> hmm. All right, we're getting into a debate over ractopamine. I think that's our sign that we should move on. But still, very interesting conversation. Hey, can we have a bacon sandwich, please? Ooh, that sounds I great right about one. now. Uh, and I won't even ask what country it's from. I'll just, because I, I, I have faith. Uh, real quick, before we move on to our final story, Gavin, let's just remind our listeners that we are coming up on Taiwan's National Day next Monday, 1010. Uh, anything to, you're going to be there. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All the enthusiasm in the world about covering this event Gavin has. Uh, anything that we can look forward to? There's going to be flyovers. There's going to be... Apparently, well, they, the, the Double Ten Organizing Committee, which is, of course, headed by legislative speaker Su Jia Chuan these days, because, of course, it was headed by, of course, the previous legislative speaker for a very, very long time. Mm, so Mr. Wang Jinping. Wang Jinping, yes. Apparently here he said this week that this year's celebrations will recognize individuals who are considered to be the pride of Taiwan. Oh, that sounds nice. And the committee said the programs at the celebration to mark the 105th anniversary of the founding of the Republic of China will be divided into two sections, those being relief work heroes and Taiwan values. All righty. Apparently three 
300 foreign dignitaries and 4,000 Taiwanese expats will be attending the Double Double Ten Day events. Mm. And one person who will also be attending is former President Chen Shui-bian and his wife, Wu Ren. And they haven't been for a few years. Yeah, They've no kidding. Been, he's been a bit busy yeah, somewhere no, else. No kidding. We'll see if the KMT uh, throws up a stink about that one. Uh, but if our listeners want to find live coverage of the event, you need to look no further than ICRT FM 100. Gavin will be there uh, squawking in the phone, keeping us up to date on everything that's happening over there. But we're going to have to move on from all of that international goodness, domestic goodness, everything, uh, and to our last story for the broadcast, and we're moving to sports. Uh, I was kind of hoping that this would be a respite from the nasty world of politics. You know, sports should generally be a fun story. But uh, in this case, the country's top baseball officials uh, really just don't seem to be getting along, Gavin. No, there's a bit of a contretemps between the Chinese Professional Baseball League, which runs the sport, that's the league that the four teams play in, and the Chinese Taipei Baseball Association, which is the, the, the political arm, you could call it, of the Baseball League. Mm, it's a government organization? It's the political arm, we'll call uh, it. Okay. Just to say that, rather than anything else, we Alrighty. might offend people. Okay. Because um, while the Chinese Professional Baseball League is headed by the teams themselves, the Chinese Taipei Baseball Association is more political appointees okay. who try to run the sport. They've had a bit of a contretemps over who will be going to the 2017 World Baseball Classic. Mm. Now, earlier this week, I spoke to Brandon Dubray, who is basically the co-founder and contributor of the CPBL English website. He's also pretty encyclopedic when it comes to his knowledge about local baseball. Yeah, he knows his stuff. He does, certainly knows his stuff. Anyway... The Chinese Professional Baseball League earlier this week said that it was withdrawing for its preparations for the 2017 World Baseball Classic due to interference by the Chinese Taipei Baseball Association. Mm -hmm. Now, the Baseball Association decided on its own who it wanted to manage the team and who it wanted to be in the team. The Chinese Professional Baseball League turned around and said, hang on a minute, you didn't ask us. You should have asked us, and we don't like it. So we're having Mm. nothing to do with it anymore. And Brandon can actually explain it better than me. Good evening, Brandon. Good evening. So, obviously, Taiwan, big dispute. The government's National Sports Administration Council and the Chinese Professional Baseball League, they've butted heads over who is going to play and who is going to manage the team for the 2017 World Baseball Classic. So, I mean... Is it this a big issue, a minor issue? Could it be a precedent for Taiwan baseball, or is it just one big mess? <laughs> well, one big mess seems to describe it. Um, basically, what we have here, Gavin, is we have two separate associations that want control of this team. we got the Chinese Taipei Baseball Association. They're backed by the government. And we have the Chinese Professional Baseball League. They run the professional league here in Taiwan, you know, commonly known as the CPBL. So, a little backstory is, let's head back to 2013, the World Baseball Classic. The two sides kind of managed to get along for this. The, the CTBA, they were in charge of the governance and, uh, you know, backed by the government and so on. They're recognized by the World Baseball Classic, the actual tournament itself. But they kind of let the CPBL, the league, run the team by, you know, choosing coaches, uh, doing the scouting, running the practices, and so on. Uh, we can even push forward to last year at the Premier 12, another big international baseball tournament, and they held the same agreement. 
This year, however, they're not okay with that. The CPBL has said, we're done cooperating with you guys, the Chinese Taipei Baseball Association. We want full control. CTBA said, sorry, you're not getting full control. And uh, CPBL has decided to withdraw their complete support from the upcoming World Baseball Classic. Right, I mean, do, do you think the, the CPBL, that's the Chinese Professional Baseball League that runs the league, do you think this, it's, it's considering the Chinese Taipei Baseball Association's meddling in this to basically be government interference in a sporting event that basically should be run by sporting associations and not governments? Uh, I think a little bit. Um, I mean, basically, it's all about just control here. The CPBL, from sources I've talked to in the league, they're more, their official stance is more about they have what they consider to be about 80% of, the, uh, of their players will make up the team, and basically all the coaching staff. So um, they feel that they should have a lot more say and control. Uh, actually, they feel they should have all control of the, uh, of the team and the way it's run. So um, is it about the government being involved? I'm not entirely sure CPBL is feeling that way, but it's more just they feel it's their players, their coaches, their team. Right. Of course, one of the teams is not sending anybody. That's right. So uh, the CPBL withdrew their support, and then they basically just said it's up to the individual teams. Luckily for Taiwan baseball fans, the, uh, the China Trust brothers, the Ida Rhinos, and the Uni President 7-Eleven Lions, they will still send their players, but the Lamigo Monkeys are not. They have decided they will um, stick with the CBBL and boycott the tournament and not allow their players to play. Right, I mean, how do you think that would hurt the team in 2017? All right, so uh, at least two key players will be missing from the Chinese Taipei team. Um, we have an outfielder for Lamigo. His name is Wang Rung. He's a young guy. Uh, he's, in my opinion, he will win Rookie of the Year and possibly even League MVP. Uh, if I was given a vote, I'd vote for him for League MVP this year in the CPBL. He's going to have the highest batting average in the league. He's already broken the league record for hits in a season. Uh, he's one of the best young position players Taiwan has ever seen. Unfortunately for Chinese Taipei fans, he plays for Lamigo, and he will not be there. Uh, a second player would probably be their starting catcher, uh, Lin Hongyu, more of a veteran guy, but he's second in the league in batting average this year, um, and he would clearly be their starting catcher and an offensive weapon. So those are two key bats that the team will be missing unless something changes before now and um, March when the tournament begins. Right. Could, could you, do you foresee anything changing, or do you think this is just a complete stalemate and it's not going anywhere? Okay, well, the official uh, word from the league is that they are done. There will be no reconciliation. There will be no deals uh, as to you know, them getting back in play. Uh, but again, it is still up to the individual teams. People I talk to say they don't foresee Lamigo changing their mind. Um, I guess the best we can hope for as baseball fans is that public pressure gets to them and they decide to, uh, to allow their players uh, to be available. And how could this be affected by the Fubon buyout of the Ida Rhinos? I don't think it will. Uh, Ida made the announcement. Uh, they made it very quietly, kind of a couple days after the other three teams. I don't know this for sure, but I'm going to assume that Fubon and Ida had discussions because Fubon will take control of the team in November. And so technically it will be their team when the tournament is running. Uh, the decision was made now, and it was announced by Ida, but I, I'm, I'm guessing that Fubon had a say in that and that they'll allow their players to play. It would also be a bold 
marketing move by the team to as uh, one of their first major moves would be to not allow their players uh, to to go play for the national team. Uh, they're all, you know they're clearly looking for a, to develop a fan base for next year, and um, you know making the baseball public angry is probably not the best way to do that. Right. I mean, as as a baseball aficionado, a fan that you are, do you have a do you have a preference for a coach for the Taiwan team at the World Baseball Classic? I'm actually going to go ahead and go with CPBL's uh, guy, uh, and that's who they wanted. They wanted Yeah, manager Yeah from the Ida Rhinos. Um, he seems to be a favorite of the players. Uh, he's done an amazing job with that team down the stretch this year. Um, and just so everybody knows, he will not be the coach. He was the coach backed by the CPBL. And what well, is one of the issues that they're arguing about? Instead, the coach will be uh, Guo Taiyuan. Now, he's a Taiwan legend in the baseball community. Um, but, you know, to be blunt, he's not had a great year coaching the Uni Lions. They're going to finish in dead last. And he also coached the Chinese Taipei team last year at the Premier 12, and they, uh, they had a very disappointing finish. They weren't able to move on for, from their uh, round-robin game. So, um, you know, I, I, I kind of think that it, it was fair to give Ye um, and his recent success a chance to manage the team. Uh, but we're not going to see that. It'll be uh, Guo Taiyuan. Because, oh, of course, the Fubon has said that Ye Chunjiang will be actually staying on as coach when the Fubon take over the Rhinos, of course. Right, and a lot of that had to do with uh, public pressure there as well. Uh, he's very popular in the uh, Taiwanese baseball community. He used to be a, uh, a catcher on the national team and uh, very well liked. Right. Looking ahead to next March, although it's a long way away, I see Taiwan is lumped with South Korea, the Netherlands and Israel. That's right. Obviously, South Korea, baseball, there we go, good. The Netherlands, of course, have always been a bit of a surprise team and are quite good at baseball, of course. But what about Israel? Where do you see Israel doing there? Well, Israel is kind of a surprise. They just won a qualifier tournament that was held in uh, New York, and they, they, uh, they, were, they looked great. I mean, they pounded everybody. They decidedly won the, the deciding game over, uh, I think it was Great Britain, and they could surprise some people. They have a talented team, uh, obviously not known as a baseball nation, but Chinese Taipei's in tough. Um, you mentioned the Netherlands. Uh, they draw mostly from Curaçao, uh, an amazing baseball island, and uh, South Korea is going to be, you know, uh, uh, the favorite to move on there. So Chinese Taipei is going to need their best. They're going to need their best players, and that's another reason why we can all kind of hope that Lamigo will end up sending um, those, uh, their players, two guys who would be in the starting lineup for sure. And once again, that was Brandon Dubray. He was the co-founder of the English-language website covering baseball news in Taiwan, CPBL English. Uh, highly recommend that site, as you can hear there. Uh, they have a lot of really insightful comments. Hey, it tracks me, and I'm English. There we go. <laughs> That's high praise right there. All right, and we uh, are going to move now to our podcast bonus story. Uh, of course, every week we try to find something on the lighter side of Taiwan news. Uh, and this week's story takes us to a landfill. This week's story takes us to a village in Yunlin County. Mm. That village is called Gukung Township. Mm-hmm. They had a bit of a messy situation this week. Sad story. Yeah, very sad. Sorry, the woman, woman that lives in Gukung Township, she mistakenly threw away her son's diamond and gold engagement rings. She put them in a bag and threw them in the trash. <laughs> Who would do such a thing? She was busy, all right? She oh, didn't she just, know. Thought, she just thought they were trash. They were in a bag. She threw the bag away. Suddenly, she had this flash. Where are my son's rings? 
Oh, they're in the garbage. <gasps> what did I do with the garbage that was in the kitchen? Oh, no. I took it to the street. It got dumped in the back of a garbage truck. So, she rounded up a friend. She headed down to the Gukung Waste Management Office, where she went, I've mistakenly thrown a paper bag away with my son's rings in it. And the head of the Waste Management Office immediately jumped into action. He contacted the local waste transfer station and he asked them, the garbage that was collected last night, where is it? And they went, uh, hang on a minute, we'll check. They came back and said, you're in luck. It hasn't been incinerated yet. Oh, it is very good luck. So he told the woman and her friend and rounded up five of his employees and went, we're heading down to that big pile of garbage, that trash mountain. And they headed down to this trash mountain and they waded through 12 tonnes of garbage <laughs> to look for a paper bag that had wedding and or rather engagement rings in it. They found them. I can't believe they that. Fa- they found them, apparently. In a 12-ton pile of garbage. 12-ton mountain of trash and they found these wedding or these engagement rings. Well, they didn't find the... They found a little bag. They found a bag. They, they found, found a, a bag. little bag they that looked bag. like trash. Yeah, yeah. Basically, they found a bag with the woman's son's diamond and gold engagement rings in it within 30 minutes. If that doesn't get you employee of the month, I don't know what does. Well, it makes you wonder what people are throwing away in Gukung Township, because it's <laughs> obviously not bags with rings in, is it? Because, you know, if it had been, they'd have been there longer. Yeah, yeah, they were well able to sort through that. That, 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 that is quite impressive. It was pretty impressive. I mean, have you ever thrown anything away that you've had to go through the garbage for? Uh, I haven't, but, you know, I mean, in Taiwan, when you lose something, sometimes people find it for you. I lost my uh, passport and my laptop once, and, you know, the police came up to me about an hour later with my stuff. That's so amazing. Guess, that guess, that guess, never yeah. happens. No, it does. I, actually, <laughs> I've lost incredible amounts of stuff. I'm getting old, I guess. And I've, I've left a laptop in a cab. I've left uh, my cell phone more than once. I've left uh, two bottles of uh, very expensive French wine. I've uh, just innumerable things that I've forgotten, and I've always gotten them back. Wow. And Only be- here in Taiwan, though? Only here in Taiwan. If it was in New York, forget about it. No, so um, one of the things I love about Taiwan is the people are really honest. And, um, you know, I left my ATM card in the machine. And when I'm back to 7-Eleven about 20 minutes later in a panic, um, the manager of the store had it. He asked me my name. I told him he gave it to me. And I said, let me give you some money for that. I'm so appreciative that you... He said, absolutely not. Yingaida, Yingaida. I have to do, should do it. And so I find the people of Taiwan extremely honest. And the police have a very good system. In one case, they actually looked at the street cameras to see the cab that I got out of at the restaurant I went to. And then traced that cab, called the guy up who was in Taoyuan, and got him to bring the... See, that's gover- cell phone back. That's government surveillance working for us right there. Ah, it's uh, unusual. That's why government surveillance isn't always bad. <laughs> hey, and government trash collection in Yunlin County is pretty good as well. Sounds like Absolutely. it. Absolutely. The guy rounded up some employees and we're going to climb that trash mountain and we're going to find those rings. There you go. Oh, my gosh. Maybe we should try it on a regular basis and find other valuables there. It's, it's, <laughs> let, 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 yeah, maybe there's other uh, secrets waiting for us in the Yunlin trash heap. I'll let you do that. <laughs> I'll, I'll 
I'll stay here in Taipei. Thank you very much. You can report on it <laughs> yeah, for us. Yeah, you can be our correspondent from Yunlin. Look forward to that. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there for the show today. That is it for Taiwan This Week. Please do join us again next time. Taiwan This Week broadcasts every Friday evening during the 8 p.m. hour right here on ICRT FM 100. Depending on the commercial load, you can look that right around 8.15 p.m. You can also find an extended version of the show online at ICRT website, on iTunes, a couple of other places. Uh, if you do listen to the show on iTunes, please do take a second uh, to rate and review the show. We've been getting some awfully nice reviews lately, so we'd like to keep that going. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Menconi, joined as always by Gavin Phipps. Thank you, Gavin. Yeah, I'm going to go home now and go through my garbage. Yeah, do you, m- make sure there's uh, nothing valuable uh, in there. I, I might have lost a fork or a spoon or something. <laughs> well, we know you'll get it back regardless, so don't need to be too nervous. Uh, also joined uh, by Brian Hugh. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for having me. And Bill Stanton. Thanks so much, Bill. Thank you very much. And thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.